This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want it, you got it. <laughs> DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Technology. And rock and roll. the show. It'd be about 1963, listening to the radio, and then, I think my earliest was from me to you. That was the first memory I had of the songs. Um, in 68, I joined the fan club, quite late, of course, and then in two years later, of course, it folded. Um, I was, I had this massive crash, uh, the boy in uh, my class, classroom, and um, he was a massive Beatles fan. And apparently in the class we had this girl, just the one girl fan of seven, and her parents had taken her to see the Beatles. Um, up until it folded, which I think was around 2003. My best friend was a big John, and I was Paul. Um, well, I used to buy Beatles monthly. Probably buying She Loves You, or my family buying She Loves You. Uh, I love Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Adore Paul, yeah. Um, yeah, John is great, but yeah, Paul, yeah. <laughs> My life went from black and white to colour. Everything just fell into place. And I've always said, if you have to explain the appeal of the Beatles to somebody, you're talking to the wrong people, because I just got it. everybody. Welcome to episode 8 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. I'm Christian Swain, behind the mic in San Francisco. That opening montage was from my trip to London last summer. I had a wonderful time hanging out with members of the British Beatles fan club and riding the Swing and 60s Experience tour bus in Twickenham. Great folks, so much positive energy that day. So this is part two of our extended look at the early origins of the Beatles. Today shows a follow-on of episode seven, so if you haven't done so already, we highly suggest you go back and take in that show first. Today's podcast will bring us back around full circle to where we started last episode, New York City, February 7th, 1964, when the Beatles arrive in America. The first wave of the British invasion. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be on this topic for a while. Our British friends did us such a favor in the mid-60s when they took American rock and roll, reinvented it, and reintroduced it back to us. Things haven't been the same since. Right here, we end an era and usher in the new. It's time to crack open a whole new volume in the history of rock and roll.
So come on back, don't miss any of it, and tell us what you think about any of our shows. Send your bouquets and your bricks and your occasional unhinged rants. All of our social media links can be found at Rock N, and that's letter N, Roll, Archaeology, and that's English spelling A-E-O in the middle, dot com. For our American listeners, we also have a voicemail line, 650-822-ROCK, where you can leave your voicemails, your shares, comment on social media, your subscriptions and reviews on iTunes. That feedback is so appreciated, so valuable to us. Finally, if you would like to support the show financially, well, thank you very much. And our website has a support the project link. We'd like to give some serious shout outs to Skip K from Atlanta, Georgia, Jesse K from London, UK, Denise R from Ohio, and Ed F from Fresno, California. A very big thank you. Another great way to help is click through our site to Amazon.com where you can purchase nearly all of the music, films, and books we feature in the show. Your cost will be the same, but Amazon will kick a few pennies our way for the referral. We get by with a little help from our friends. Yes, we do. Okay, that takes care of the housekeeping stuff. So you know what I mean. I mean, let's get to it. Right now, this is Episode 8, Meet the Beatles, Part 2. We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. We open in Liverpool at the Cavern Club on Matthew Street. We are one foggy, dank mile inland from the vast Liverpool docks, the world's largest dock complex. Seven miles of piers and wharves, man-made fingers poking the River Mersey. The Mersey doesn't notice these jabs, these interruptions. The Mersey flows unperturbed. It flows grayish-brown and oily. It flows cold and insistent. The River Mersey flows to the west, into the Bay of Liverpool, to the west, into the turbulent Irish Sea, to the west, into the chilly, gray North Atlantic. Our drop of oily Mersey water joins uncountable billions of his salty brothers in the North Atlantic jet stream. They flow together again to the west, always to the west, ever to the west, to the shores, finally, of America. a hole in the wall, but that's being really unfair to holes in the wall. Hole in the ground, maybe. That's fair. The British television actress Sue Johnston, 
uh, if you're like me and a fan of the Down Abbey series on PBS, you might know her as Miss Danka, the Dowager's maid. Anyway, Sue was a Liverpool teen in those days, a honest-to-goodness cavern dweller. She wrote this vivid description in her 2011 memoir, Things I Couldn't Tell My Mother. The cavern was damp and stinking, but it was such an exciting place to be, and the smell was part of it. Once down there, it was very dark. There were brick arches that straddled the two cellars that made up the club. It used to drip moisture from the ceiling, and it was hard not to think that it was other people's sweat plopping on your head as you danced. It wasn't unusual to go to the toilet and find yourself face to face with a rat. So, two days after Christmas, 1961, it is bitterly cold out the coldest December night in years. The recorded low in Liverpool that night was minus 9 degrees Celsius. To us Yanks, that's 16 degrees Fahrenheit. The Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Pete Best, are scheduled to do a show at the Cavern, the Beatles' Christmas special. Pete Best called in sick. It's not clear whether Pete's substitute was already there at the club or if they had to ring him up and have him come down. What we do know is John, Paul, and George brought Richard Starkey into drum that evening, Richie's first paid gig with the Beatles. Richard Starkey, Ringo's star to the world, but always Richie to his friends, family, and bandmates, was at loose ends. For two-plus years now, he'd anchored the rhythm section for Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, a flashy and popular but musically very limited outfit that often crossed paths with the Beatles on the club circuits of Liverpool and Hamburg. Drumming with the Hurricanes, he'd done all right with it. He'd come a long way, really. Richie grew up in grinding poverty in the Dingle, a peninsula point of land, another poke in the River Mersey, a blighted rough neighborhood, the worst part of Liverpool. By the age of 21, he drummed his way out of poverty, a good thing, too, because every foray into the workforce had failed, and usually in a spectacular manner. Drumming for the hurricanes paid the bills. He had his own car and some proper clothes. He was a popular guy on the circuit, well-liked, respected by the other musicians, and the girls just loved Richie. He dressed sharp, he was a great dancer, and he had those adorable lost little puppy looks. Still in all, by early 62, Richie was impatient, looking to make a move. He was a good musician, way too good to be playing with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. The consensus around Liverpool, where there was very much a pecking order, was that Richie was the best drummer in town. And when he sat in with the Beatles that cold December night at the Cavern Club, well, just wow. It really clicked on a musical level. There was no rehearsal, so Richie struggled a bit through some songs. But when the boys got to the showstopper near the end of the night, their cover of Ray Charles's What I'd Say, oh man, Richie just loved it. The feeling was mutual. Richie kept good time, and he worked easily in a variety of styles. George Harrison, that fussy musical perfectionist, especially enjoyed having him back there. The band really swung with Ringo on drums, George would say again and again over the years. 
In George's own telling, starting that very night, he began conspiring to get rid of Pete and bring in Ringo. George didn't have to conspire all that much. Paul McCartney could be a fussy perfectionist his own self, and he relished working with a drummer who could sync up with his bass lines and drive the song. As for John, while he got along with Pete better than the other two, well, as we've said before, young John Lennon was nothing if not ambitious. And there's a flow, a natural procession to it. Paul brought George, and George brought Ringo. Ringo stuck around after the show, and he was fun to hang out with, too. A much better social fit than Pete Best, who typically showed up, played the gig, and split. Three months later, Monday, March 26, 1962, Ringo again subbed for Pete at the Cavern for a Lunchtime show and for an evening show at the Kingsway Club in nearby Southport. For two shows, Ringo earned nine English pounds, about 200 U.S. dollars these days, more than triple what he made drumming for the Hurricanes. A bloke could get ahead on that kind of money, maybe even save up and open his own hairdressing shop, Ringo's ambition at the time. He also learned that day that George and Paul were already earning more than their respective fathers. You see, the Beatles had a manager now, a natty-dressed, posh-sounding bloke, a real businessman type who booked them on lots of gigs for good pay. Brian Epstein picked Ringo up in the dingle and drove him downtown to the gig that day. Two days later, on Wednesday the 28th, Ringo sat in again for a lunchtime gig at the Cavern. Two 45-minute sets yielded him three pounds, a tidy sum for an afternoon's work. The following Friday, Ringo stopped by Brian's office at North End Music Services, NEMS, and picked up his pay envelope with a neatly typed invoice tucked inside. Now, this was the proper way to do it, all business-like and professional. To a ghetto kid from the Dingle who grew up sickly and underfed, all this made a powerful impression. That spring, Ringo got offers but he decided to sit tight and wait for an offer from the Beatles. He knew they were interested. He headed off to Butlins, a holiday camp on the east coast of England, for a summer residency gig with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. The Beatles headed back to Hamburg to play the Star Club and get knee-deep in the debauchery. It would be four eventful months before they all crossed paths again. As for Brian Epstein, he went back to London and got it done finally grabbed the brass ring while the Beatles rocked Hamburg he got them a recording contract Brian Epstein a little. Brian shows up for the first time on November 9th, 1961 at, where else, the Cavern Club in Liverpool. The Beatles knew they were being watched. Brian stood at a fucking mile, not just in the cavern, but everywhere. He exhibited class. The finest suits and Italian shoes, jewelry, gold cigarette case and lighter, the smart overcoat, and that crisp Royal Academy voice. 
That's another quote from Mark Lewison's 2013 book, Tune In, The Beatles, All These Years. We want to once again acknowledge our primary sources. Lewison and Bob Spitz, author of the 2004 book, The Beatles, The Biography. These guys are the real rock and roll archaeologists. We highly recommend their work. Spitz portrays Brian Epstein just right in our view. He unflinchingly discusses Brian's struggles with himself as a closeted gay man. It's clear to us that Brian Epstein had a streak of self-loathing a mile wide, but his overall tone is one of empathy for Brian Epstein's dilemma and admiration for his work breaking out the Beatles. We feel exactly the same way. Brian was fiercely devoted to his young charges. Whatever personal demons he may have struggled with, he was forthright in his business dealings, almost to a fault. And he worked hard, worked passionately. Commendable and highly unusual traits for a talent manager. As for Brian's life in the closet, well, he had no choice. Homosexuality was a criminal offense in the UK in those days. And Brian Epstein was a scion of the genteel upper class. In that stratum, there in the fading twilight of Victorian morality, propriety and respectability were all. An openly gay man, even if he did manage to avoid trouble with the law, would still pay a terribly high social price. His inherent insecurities and being forced to live a lie formed a dreadful feedback loop of self-loathing. It pushed him to drink, to drugs, to deep depressions and pushed him obsessively towards the rough trade, anonymous, dangerous encounters. On at least two documented occasions, Brian Epstein was robbed and savagely beaten when a sexual liaison went horribly wrong. Although he fervently hoped otherwise, it wasn't hard to spot. From the beginning, the Beatles were aware of Brian's preferences, and they teased him mercilessly about it, but they would never, ever allow anyone outside their tight little group to do the same. One Liverpool promoter was forgotten by them forever for making some derogatory remarks in public about Brian's homosexuality. Not only did they refuse to play his club for any price, none of the Beatles would ever speak to him again. Some biographers have pushed the idea that Brian was motivated by a homoerotic attraction to his young, handsome clients, in particular John Lennon. Our take on this, even if Brian really did fancy John or one of the other Beatles, so what? It's what you actually do and say that matters. Brian felt that pull, that desire that's obvious, but nothing in the record indicates conflict of interest or favoritism. Nobody disputes that. Nobody worth taking seriously, anyway. Philip Norman's 2008 book, John Lennon, The Life, honestly explores this issue. Links and further discussions are in the show notes. Case closed. Subject dismissed. Let's move on. way by working hard and earning their trust. The Beatles had already been through several managers. 
Brian was different, though. He spoke with the clipped, refined tones of an upper-class Englishman, tones polished by the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. But he was also Liverpool. He grew up there, just one neighborhood over from Woolton, where John lived with his Aunt Mimi. He managed NEMS, the best record shop in town, right around the corner, maybe a hundred steps away from the Cavern Club. Liverpool Roots and Mayfair Manors. Most important of all, the four guys who grew up in a down-at-the-heels working-class town. Brian got them paid, better than any other band in town. And he got them organized, focused. Lennon biographer Philip Norman writes... Before a gig, their driver, Neil Aspinall, would receive lengthy typewritten instructions. Where, for whom, and for how long they were to play, stressing the need to be punctual and professional. Each Friday, every Beatle received a detailed summary of the past week's earnings and disbursements. John pretended to find all of this bureaucracy ridiculous, but the organised side of him was impressed. It's true that Brian got rolled, big time, when it came to merchandising the Beatles brand in America. Brian's naivety and ineptitude on that deal cost them dearly, at least $10 million in income. They got only pennies on the dollar for all the Beatles stickers, buttons, posters, t-shirts, hats, souvenir plates, toys, all the Beatles lunchboxes that were sold to American kids. I had one of those lunchboxes. A few toys and such. An incredible fortune was made on this stuff, and the Beatles themselves saw almost none of it. But that came later. In his first two years shepherding the Beatles' career, Brian pulled off one coup after another. Look at what he accomplished that first year. Brian started with the Beatles at the end of 1961, right around the same time Ringo sat in with them at the Cavern Club. By the time Ringo sat in with them again in March, Brian had tripled their nightly pay. At least once a week, he took the train to London to make his pitch. He pitched every record company in Britain, and he kept at it. And when they went to Hamburg for the third time in April, Brian negotiated better pay, accommodations, and travel for that tour. In their absence, he redoubled his efforts in London and got the Beatles their record deal. By the fall of 62, their first single was climbing the UK charts. In early 1963, at the beginning of Brian's second year, the British press coined a new word, Beatlemania. Now, it's part of the Beatles' legend that Brian went through all kinds of frustration and heartbreak getting them a record deal. Friends on that, we gotta call bullshit. Another bit of mythology. We give Brian all the credit in the world for his resilience and devotion. He pushed himself and put up a lot of crap from the Beatles and from the record company functionaries he pitched on their behalf. But on balance, it wasn't all that terrible. It only took a few months. Even before he was under contract as the Beatles' manager and agent, Brian landed a big one. On New Year's Day of 1962, the Beatles cut a demo for Decca Records in London. They were nervous and not very good that day, all of them would later admit. Some of those recordings are in the anthology collection. We find them interesting, but unimpressive. John does okay, but George sings out of tune and plays some embarrassing solos. Paul sounds nervous and tentative throughout. Pete Bass just butchers it. 
You can hear him speeding up and slowing down. He misses cues. It's, it's a mess. Nonetheless, for weeks, the boys were on pins and needles. They figured this was the big break. It wasn't. Decca passed on the Beatles in early February. But only days later, Brian met for the first time with George Martin, the head of Parlophone Records, and that meeting would lead to a deal. When Brian reluctantly broke the news about Decca, the boys laid into him hard. But they didn't stay mad. They knew Decca was a near miss. And the next time, they'd nail it. And, as it turned out, Brian already had the next opportunity in the pipeline. They didn't bother to tell Pete Best about any of this. Pete showed up, set up, played the drums, packed up, and left. He was kept appraised by Brian about their live schedule, and he picked up his pay envelope on Friday, right up to his final moment as a Beatle. Pete was oblivious, because the other three wanted it that way. One final thought about Brian and the Beatles, and this is the takeaway. Brian polished them and pushed them, but he didn't try to remake them or mold them. He listened to them, what they sang and what they said, and he was willing to help them do it their way. The Beatles wanted to make it to the toppermost of the poppermost, but on their own terms, with their own songs, on their own turf. And most of all, Brian knew a record deal in London was just the next stop. He shared their ultimate ambition. He knew where this was headed. Westward, with the flow of the River Mersey, westward across the water, to America. It won't be long, yeah. Beatles wanted Ringo, the three late March gigs right before Hamburg clinched it. But they were contractually obliged to the Hamburg shows, and they didn't know Ringo's availability, so they couldn't make a move yet. Back in Liverpool two months later, they brought up sacking Pete. Brian was reluctant to tinker with success. Pete Best had a fan base. He was movie star handsome and his moody detachment back there behind the kid was actually kind of cool. He did okay live, especially on the fast songs, but the Beatles had done four recording sessions now with Pete, two in Hamburg, New Year's Day at Decca, and the June session for George Martin at Abbey Road, and Pete did miserably at all of them. On August 15, 1962, John Lennon and Paul McCartney rose at dawn and drove five hours across England to Butlin's holiday camp to meet up with Ringo and offer him the job. Roy Storm was understandably angry, but after an hour or so of arguing, John and Paul wore him down. Roy surrendered to fate and to history. Ringo Starr was free to leave the Hurricanes and join the Beatles. The next day, Brian called Pete Best down to his office and gave him the tough news. It was not a pleasant meeting, to put it mildly. Like a good English businessman, Brian saw it through and did a proper job, but inside he seethed with resentment. He liked Pete, 
and he felt the ugly task of firing him had been pushed onto him by the other three as some kind of test. In later years, John and Paul sort of apologized, admitted they could have handled it better. George was fine with it all. Ringo was his buddy. He made the band better. What else was there to consider? Really, though, it wasn't the Beatles. And it wasn't Brian. It was George Martin, albeit unwittingly and unintentionally, who finally brought down the curtain on Pete Best. George Martin had the aura. He was a tall man, well over six feet, with a fine head of thick, wavy, swept-back hair and dramatic features. He also conducted himself with such natural deference that every gesture seemed informed by a graciousness and decency. That's another quote from Bob Spitz. As we put this show into production in March of 2016, we got the sad news that Sir George Martin passed at the age of 90. George Martin lived a long, productive, and eventful life. His accomplishments and legacy will always be with us. Rest in peace, Sir George. George Martin was fond of saying the Beatles would have been a great success whether or not he produced them. That modesty and grace is appealing and very much in keeping with his character, but we really got to question that statement. It's impossible to truly know, but we find it difficult to imagine how Beatles records would sound without George Martin's guidance and input, without his touch. George was not merely a witness to history. In the studio, he was the fifth Beatle. To make that case... We will profile George Martin through his contributions to five Beatles songs, five early hits recorded and released in a span of about 16 months, from the fall of 1962 on through to the end of 1963, less than a year and a half. With George Martin as producer, that's how long it took the Beatles to rise from pretty good homegrown rock and roll band to the most important cultural phenomenon of the 20th century. First up, Love Me Do. George Martin heard this song at the time the same way we hear it now. It's sweet and unpretentious, but truthfully, pretty ordinary. There are hints of things to come. The opening harmonica hook is nice. That was something new in the UK. The stops and starts are clever. And it has some nice vocal arranging. There's promise. There's potential. But like George, we aren't quite sold yet. Let me do peak at number 17 on the British sales charts. Mostly on the strength of regional sales in and around Liverpool. We find it interesting as a historical artifact. It's the Beatles' first single. George Martin made a couple of tweaks. Notably, he had Paul McCartney sing Love Me Do after the Please part. 
John sang that live, but he would sing, Love me, and then return his mouth to the harmonica. George pointed out, very sensibly, that the name of the song was Love Me Do, not Love Me Wah. So Paul took over that line. He was, in his own words, terrified he was suddenly given this massive moment on their first record. In a 1988 interview with Lewison, Paul said he can still hear the shake of his voice when he listens to it. But let's back up just a bit and fill in the story. On May 9th, 1962, six months to the day after he first saw the Beatles at the Cavern Club, Brian Epstein met with George Martin a second time and secured a recording contract with Parlophone Records, a small subsidiary of EMI. George Martin had done very well producing and recording comedy albums, notably for The Goon Show, that absurdist radio program the Beatles so enjoyed growing up. But up to this point, Parlophone had enjoyed zero success with pop and rock groups. It was a gaping hole in the roster, and George was determined to fill it. Brian's pitch the first time, back in February, was fast-talking and frenetic, and it didn't work. George Martin passed on the Beatles, but he did leave the door open. This time, Brian took a relaxed approach, just a couple of English gentlemen talking over some things. That approach succeeded. Indeed, at least at first, George was more impressed with Brian than he was with the Beatles. This Brian Epstein fellow seems like a good sort, he thought. Perhaps he sees something here that I don't. The two men checked diaries and set a recording date, June 6th. Brian Epstein telegrammed the Beatles in Hamburg to share the news. Paul McCartney telegrammed a cheeky response. Please send advance royalties in the sum of £10,000 forthwith. That June 6, 1962 meeting with George Martin at Abbey Road has become part of the legend. The boys played a handful of tunes. Love Me Do was one of them, while the tape rolled. As head of the label, George Martin delegated the task of running the session, but he did stop by to listen and observe. First words he ever spoke to John and Paul and George were when he came into the studio and changed the vocal arrangement on Love Me Do. Back in the control room, he let Brian Epstein know he would like to meet the boys afterwards. So, here's our favorite part. After the session, the Beatles filed in, and George Martin went on for some time about procedures, about what was expected of Parlophone artists. He then wrapped up, as an executive often does, by asking, Okay, any questions? Is there anything you don't like here? A pause, an awkward silence. Then George Harrison piped up, droll and laconic. Well, we don't like your tie very much. Polished, urbane, classically trained George Martin was actually rather proud of that tie. It was one of his favorites. Now, the Beatles knew George Martin's background about his work producing comedy records for the goons. Perhaps that's what inspired young George Harrison to mouth off to the man who held their collective futures in his hands. Or maybe he just couldn't help himself. We'll never truly know. George Martin paused, just long enough to let the comic tension build. Then he smiled, and they all shared a laugh. The ice was broken, and a legendary musical collaboration was now really underway. 
George Martin had some musical input, but his big contribution to Love Me Do was simple. He let them do it. He made three early decisions that seem obvious now, but were contrary to the conventions of the time. First, he let the Beatles release a Lennon-McCartney original as their first song, Out the Gate. Second, he let them be a group. Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Rory Storm, the Hurricanes, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. Notice the pattern here? It was the established practice to push one guy out front. For a time, George Martin tried to decide whether it would be John or Paul he anointed as the Beatles' front man. He was leaning towards Paul. But then he realized it was the group dynamic that made it interesting, made it different. He wisely chose to leave that alone. And third, after that meeting, he pulled Brian Epstein aside. He told Brian he would like the boys back at Abbey Road to re-record Love Me Do, this time for release, and that he intended to hire a studio drummer for that session. Exit Pete. Enter Ringo. here. First of all, our friend George Harrison, right before the chorus. George contributes a twangy, understated riff that perfectly serves the song. The first of many times he would do this on a Beatles recording. Nice to hear from George. And in the middle section, right there, they switched to double time. The boys called this the skip beat. It was a trick they picked up in Hamburg. They originally wanted to do a skip beat in the middle section of Love Me Do, but Pete kept butchering it. On this song, Ringo pulls it off nicely. And finally, this bit, a short, perfectly executed vocal weave that leads to a tightly arranged coda. This is some songcraft right here. John wrote Please Please Me in the early summer of 1962. It's kind of a mid-tempo tribute to Roy Orbison. At George Martin's urging, they changed the key and revved it up. They recorded it in November, and Parlophone released it in time for the holidays. It went to number two in the UK, or number one, depending on which chart you go by. It's also the title cut of the Beatles' first album on Parlophone. Now, American fans might say, hey, uh, wait a minute, I thought this first Beatles album was Meet the Beatles on Capitol. Oh, yeah, Capitol, an American subsidiary of EMI, did indeed press and distribute Beatles records here in the U.S., except for the first one. Please Please Me, the album, was renamed Introducing the Beatles and distributed in the States by an indie label, VJ Records. With the Beatles was the second album in the UK. It came out in November of 63. It was shortened by a couple of songs, renamed Meet the Beatles, and released in the US on Capitol Records in early 64. The American releases differ from the British releases, often in very perplexing and frustrating ways. It was like this the whole way, until the Beatles formed their own label, Apple Records, in 1968. 
Not to put too fine a point on it, but the folks at Capitol Records were a bunch of fucking morons. Throughout 1963, they had this money-making machine churning away in England, already under contract to their parent company, and nobody had the wit to notice it and do something about it. (laughs) Despite repeated pleas from Brian Epstein and George Martin, despite orders from their parent company, Capitol kept passing on the Beatles and didn't distribute their early hits in America. And when they finally did, they put out shoddy substandard product. We really don't want to dwell on this further. We used to be disgusted now. We just try to be amused. We sadly shrug and toss another log onto the raging bonfire of greed and stupidity that is the recording industry in America. Hit it, boys. This song kicks off side one of Please Please Me, the Beatles' first album. Drop the needle, and Paul calls out. That quick little count has so much promise in it. Something big is about to arrive. Remember back in episode seven when our friend Adam Scott threw out that awesome phrase, God's Honest American Rock and Roll? Well... This is God's Honest American Rock and Roll, sent back over the water to us from the Cavern Club in Liverpool. My heart went boom. Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly influences are all over this song. But it's better than Chuck, better than Buddy. Right here, this, this is the amazing thing that great rock musicians do. They pay tribute to the original, but then they take it further make it way beyond compare. Buddy would have loved this one. The driving, bluesy guitars, great groove vocals, overdubbed hand claps. Now, a little Karen craziness. And play it, George. saw her standing there. It's not real inventive or original, especially when we think about later work from the Beatles, but it is so well executed. A smoking hot club band on a good night in front of a crazy crowd. Nothing wrong with that, my fellow rockers. The Cavern Club feel is no accident. George Martin wanted to record the Beatles live at the Cavern in front of their hometown crowd, but there were technical problems with that approach. So he did the next best thing. He told Brian Epstein to have the boys practice a short, tight set, about a dozen songs, a half-and-half mix of originals and covers to record live in the studio. Ten of the 14 songs on that first Beatles album, including this cut, were recorded in one day in a marathon session at Abbey Road on February 11, 1963. A week later, Martin overdubbed some keyboards on two songs and mixed it down. The album was rush released in March to take advantage of the chart success of the title cut, Please Please Me. It shot straight to number one on the album charts, and Beatlemania broke out up and down the British Isles. She 
Next up, the song that put the Beatles on the map, literally. This was number one in the UK and in Sweden, Germany, France, Australia, and Canada. First of all, Ringo Starr shines on this one. This is the first song with his new Ludwig drum kit. You can hear the difference. The very first notes are his lopy drum roll on the downbeat. Then he plays a neat triplet figure on the main hook right after. Hear it? These two tricks are classic Ringo. We'll hear them again. That little loping roll. Think of when Ringo comes in behind the guitar on the opening of Day Tripper. That triplet beat, that's his main hook on Ticket to Ride. George Harrison has a new instrument too, a Gretsch Tennessean, the guitar favored by his heroes Chet Atkins and Carl Perkins. It's got more shimmer than the duo diamond here. She loves you. second person. Something of a new wrinkle. John and Paul love to scour the bins for American R&B records. And the more obscure, the better. The Advice Song was a thing with R&B artists in those days. A song written in the second person giving a friend advice on love. She Loves You is a true Lennon-McCartney co-write. Composed eyeball to eyeball over several days in the hotel rooms and in the van. George and Ringo put their own parts together during run-throughs in the studio before George Martin rolled the tape. Opening the song with the chorus was George Martin's idea. His other suggestion? Sing it more simply and get rid of that doo-wop suspended harmony on the very last chord of the song. George thought it was show-off-y, trying too hard, but the boys overruled him on that one. So we see the Beatles trust George Martin and respect his suggestions, but when they feel strongly about something, they have the confidence to insist on it. This is the stuff of great collaborations. Now, finally, here's the Beatles' first number one hit in the States, the song that sent them across the water to America. sinewy bass line, John's chunky rhythm guitar, and George's shimmery Gretsch. Here they are, bouncing off each other in beautiful syncopation while Ringo keeps it all nailed down. Four guys, barely out of their teens, with a great producer and a small team of technicians on a four-track. It took 17 takes. Oh, figure about two or three hours. Unfreaking real. There is some modest studio trickery. Overdubbed hand claps and John's rhythm guitar played on a Gibson jumbo is heavily compressed and equalized so it sounds almost like an organ. George Harrison overdubbed an extra bass guitar part and some lead guitar bits. I Want to Hold Your Hand puts it all together. A high-powered, finely tuned rock and roll engine peeling out and reeling off one catchy pop hook after another. It was the first of 20 Beatles songs to hit number one in America. Number one. 
CBS sent a news crew over to London to document Beatlemania. The story was to run on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite on November 22, 1963. The second UK album, With the Beatles, dropped that same day on November 22nd. Beatlemania, already white hot in England, went nuclear that day, nationwide madness. Later that same day, November 22, 1963, Across the water, halfway across a continent in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Philip Norman picks up the story. The album's release date, Friday, November 22nd, found the Beatles preparing for a one-nighter at the Globe Cinema. Around 6pm, a fellow musician came to their dressing room with the news. Kennedy was an inspirational figure to the British, hardly less than to his own people, for his youth and glamour and the sense of idealism and optimism he had given the new decade. America and Britain had lost a hero in common, Millions on each side of the Atlantic would always remember exactly where and in what circumstances they first heard the news. A few weeks later, on December 10th, Walter Cronkite decided that a shaken and grieving nation might be comforted by some light-hearted news from England. So CBS ran the Beatles segment that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the Beatles, those are. And this is Beatleland, formerly known as Britain where an epidemic called Beatlemania has seized the teenage population, especially female. In the introduction to his terrific book, Mark Lewison observed that the Beatles were unique because they were free of artifice. They happened organically while everyone was looking the other way. They were the real deal, a fan-driven, grassroots phenomenon. Case in point, 15-year-old Marsha Alberts saw the Beatles on the CBS News. She's going to write a little letter, going to mail it to her local DJ. WWDC was an AM band station in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore market. Carol James, the evening DJ, was not a rock and roller by any stretch, but he was genial and open-minded and intrigued by the passion of this young fan who wrote in. 
A week later, on December 17th, 1963, Marsha was invited in, read some copy hastily scribbled on the back of a traffic report, and introduced the Beatles to the American airwaves. In the middle of the song, Carol James jumped in with a tag, a WWDC exclusive, to keep competing stations from taping and rebroadcasting it. The station switchboard exploded, and the song exploded. In a matter of days, radio stations across America were playing I Want to Hold Your Hand. You could say Marsha Albert's post went viral, even if it was decades before computers, the internet, and social media. So, it's the height of the Christmas shopping season. We have a great record. It's a smash. Already a million seller in the UK. Here in the States, it's on the radio a dozen times a day, and everybody's talking about it. And not one retailer in all of America has a copy for sale. Did I mention the folks at Capitol Records were a bunch of fucking morons? (laughs) It bears repeating. Capitol... Finally, figured it out, and Rush released I Want to Hold Your Hand, backed with I Saw Her Standing There. That 45 RPM single hit American record stores on December 27th, 1963, exactly two years on from that cold night in Liverpool when Richie Starkey sat in on the drums. By the time the Beatles arrive on February 7th, 1964, 2.6 million copies had been sold. It was three weeks at number one, and Capital was hiring out pressing facilities from other labels just to keep up with demand. As far as I can tell, the four Beatles are standing at the door on the aircraft, almost certainly, completely, and utterly in shock. No one, I mean no one, has ever seen or even remotely suspected anything like this before. News radio guy is about to blow a gasket here. But if any subsequent events are any guide, then the Beatles were not utterly in shock. They were elated and vastly relieved to stand at the top of the stairs and gaze out over a sea of thousands of Beatle fans, American Beatle fans. In particular for John Lennon, that lover of all things American, this was a dream come true moment. But as we discussed early on, the boys were more than ready for this, and the American news media was about to get owned Liverpool style. The boys were hustled past customs into the Pan Am lounge for a short press conference. This presser, and every other press conference the Beatles did in America, is notable for two reasons. First, for the barrage of inane questions from a gang of loudmouthed boorish yokels who had somehow managed to obtain press credentials. We would call it embarrassing, especially the conduct of the TV and radio people, but what would be the point? Clearly these folks were incapable of feeling embarrassment. Second, and far more important to our story, is the aplomb and composure these four young men showed in the face of this tidal wave of idiocy. Paul was smooth and charming, with the natural instincts of a diplomat. Ringo was, aw shucks, goofy and adorable. George would come in from time to time with a droll and devastatingly funny quip. And John, quick-witted and bitingly sarcastic, rang rings around them all. Within a few moments, the Beatles took command of the room, and by the end of the 15-minute session, they had millions of viewers and listeners eating out of their hands. 
it was beyond brilliant. Would you be quiet? No! On February 9th, 1964, at about 8.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 73 million Americans watched John, Paul, George, and Ringo arrive on the Ed Sullivan Show. To this point in history, it was the single largest audience for anything ever. Moments can be hard to pin down, but not in this case. Something else arrives right here, right alongside the Beatles. And as big as the Beatles were, and still are, this is even bigger. The baby boom has arrived, the biggest generational cohort in human history. The Beatles are the first and most important cultural avatars for the boomers, and it has been so satisfying and so much fun for us to tell you the story today. But this is only an arrival, just a small beginning. The 60s, those years of hope and days of rage, that tumultuous and troubling, weird and wonderful decade, the 60s have also arrived. It's all in front of us, friends. We've got a ticket to ride. Step onto a long and winding road. Roll up for a magical mystery tour. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! <laughs> Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you shop and is nicked by a Ted named John. Five callow teenage rockers arrive in Hamburg. Four will depart. A 
van arrives at a service entrance behind Abbey Road in North London, and four cocky young men tumble out. A Boeing 707 arrives in New York. Rock and roll arrives in America once again, to a nation stunned and still grieving. Arrival. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Friends, thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again in Episode 9. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Sound by John Michael Berry. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.